All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Daily Power Parsha, Monday, February 14th. Today is a very special day. Very special day, not because of what Hallmark says, although Hallmark, Hallmark knows what they're talking about. Nonetheless, today is very special because we are beginning. Oh, look at that. Joy. <laughs> Love it. That's so I looked away. There you go. Everyone's got hearts. <laughs> Unbelievable. There you go. We'll make a little heart situation. <laughs> Look, guys, I, it's... Sarah, make your heart in the corner. Right. Oh, right. The heart, the, the heart emoji thing. Right. Oh, there you go. Everyone's got... How do I do that? I wish I would know how to do that. I'm sure I know how to. Let's see more. Man, you would think I would know how to do this stuff. But whatever. Okay. Reactions. Ta-da! There we go. We got hearts everywhere. Good. Fine. But my point is it's not about that. It's about the fact that we're starting a brand new week of Torah study, of DPP study, and that means we're starting a new parsha. This week's parsha is Kisisa, a.k.a. Kitisa, depending on pronunciation. And boy, oh boy, there is so much to talk about. We have the golden calf this week. We have God threatening to destroy the Jewish people. Moses acting on behalf of the Jewish people. There's so much drama. Man, oh man. If you like, I don't know, I'm just going to go with like Judge Judy. If you like drama, we got a lot of drama this week. Okay. Judge Judy is a very random reference. Okay. Let's jump in. I'm going to share my screen with you. Let's get started. Torah reading for Ki Tisa. It begins quite innocently. Innocent, innocently, with a, with a continuation of the donations for the Mishkan. So, just to quickly reset this. The last two weeks, we've heard God tell Moses exactly what the Mishkan is supposed to look like. The portable temple. Exactly what, how, what materials it should be made of. Um, the dimensions, the items, the vessels, the garments, the people, the inauguration of the people. We got everything. And now we actually have to make it happen. So here we go. Exodus chapter 30, verse number 11. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, here we go. When you take the sum of the children of Israel, according to their numbers, I'm going to say that in simple English. When you count the people, let each one give to the Lord an atonement for his soul when they are counted. We will explain this in a moment. Let's continue. Then there will be no plague among them when they are counted. God says, when you take a census, when you count the people, the way you should count is by each one giving an atonement for his soul when they are counted. That means giving a coin, which we'll see in the next verse. Give a coin to the temple or to the, uh, to the fund of the Mishkan, a half a shekel, and that will be counted, and that's how you count the people, and that's going to avoid a plague that could otherwise break out while they were counted. This is all extremely important stuff. When you count the Jewish people, God is saying, don't count one, two, three, four, do not do that. That could evoke a plague. That could evoke a plague. It's called an ayin hara. You know what an ayin hara is, Right? Kain Ayin Hara, you know this? The Ayin Hara means an evil eye. When you count 
a multitude of people, one, two, three, etc., and you count a group, it is it could evoke an einhar the, the evil eye, and thus we avoid it. For example, in synagogue, or not, yeah, it's not just an example, it's actually an embodiment of this. In shul, in synagogues, when you count for a minion, you're trying to figure out, okay, do we have 10? Like, do we have a minion? Did we get there? So you don't say, okay, we have one, two, three. We don't do that. You either use a verse. There's a verse, a famous verse from Psalms that has 10 words in it. That has 10, 10 words. And you count each one, you attribute to one word of the, of the verse. And if you get the whole verse in, you know you have a minion. It's one way. Or the way we sometimes do it is not one, not two, not three, not four. I know it sounds like you're counting and just saying the word not, but it's at least not counting. It's literally not counting. The point is that counting directly could evoke, God forbid, could elicit, God forbid, a plague. And we don't want to do that. Rather, the way it's done in ancient times, God says to Moses, is that each one, each head of household, should give a, an atonement, in other words, a donation, a gift, a half a shekel, count up the coins, you know how many people that, you know, you, and that way you'll know how many people are there. This they shall give. So what's the atonement? Should give an atonement. So what's the atonement? God says, this they shall give. Everyone who goes through the counting, ha- this they shall give everyone who go- okay, in English, everyone who goes through the counting should give this. Half a shekel according to the holy shekel. Maybe there were different types of shekel, right? Different shkalim. Half a shekel based on the holy shekel. What is the definition of the word shekel? Shekel is a coin. Shekel is also a weight. Yeah. Because they in money in Israel is called shekels. Right, that's the currency, yeah. The currency, yeah. Yeah, so half a shekel was a coin, according to the holy shekel. 20 geras equal one shekel, that's a weight. That's how much one shekel is, 20 geras. Half of such a shekel shall be an offering to the Lord. So basically 10, 10 gera. It's like imagine if you said a dollar, right? A dollar. Imagine a dollar coin. You say, well, how much is a dollar? A dollar is 10 dimes. Right? Four quarters. 20 nickels. 100 pennies. Okay, we're giving, we're giving examples here. But it's not a full dollar. It's a half, right? It's a half a shekel. Twenty gears equal one shekel. So half of such shekel shall be an offering to the Lord. Let's continue. Everyone who goes through the counting from the age of twenty and upward shall give an offering to the Lord. Shall give this half shekel. So again, just to be very clear here, I want to be upfront. No, uh, no surprises. Men, twenty to sixty, were the ones who were counted for the census, and they were the ones that gave a half a shekel which were then, the, the coins were counted, and that's how they knew how many men there were between 20 and 60. This is the military age, right? Military draft eligibility. The rich shall give no more. The poor shall give no less than half a shekel. Everyone gives the same. Everyone gives half a shekel for everyone. I have a lot of money. I want to give more. You can give more another time. Right now we're collecting half shekels. One half shekel per person. No more, no less with which to give the offering to the Lord to atone for your souls. There's so much to talk about. Deeper ideas. We're going to get there in a moment. Let's continue. You shall take the silver of the atonements, this silver coin, half shekels, from the children of Israel and use it for the work of the tent of meeting. You're going to use it to help 
build the Mishkan. It shall be a remembrance for the children of Israel before the Lord to atone for your souls. That's the end of the opening commandment. And now I want to go back and review some very important details and highlight some things that perhaps we didn't, we didn't cover thus far. Number one, the commandment begins with God telling Moses essentially to count the people. But the way it's referred to, you know, take the sum, take the sum. In Hebrew, it's ki tisa, which is the name of the Torah portion, ki tisa. The, that, those are the words right here, ki tisa. Ki tisa means literally when you lift, when you lift. Ki tisa es ro, et rosh b'nei Yisrael. When you lift the head, rosh is head, right? Rosh Hashanah, head of the year. Ki tisa et rosh b'nei Yisrael. When you lift the heads of the children of Israel. That is not the way it's translated here. When you take the sum... Versus literally when you lift the head. Okay? Lifting the head sounds like, I don't know, does not sound like a desirable thing. It sounds like what a king might say in ancient France. Like, lift their heads, off their heads. This is not, does not sound like a warm, fuzzy census. Why is the census taking the sum called lifting the head? There are many reasons for this. The one that resonates with me and the one I want to share with you is the following. Why are we counting? What's the point of counting? You could take a step back and say, why the census to begin with? God doesn't know the number. We need an audit. God's like, God says to Moses, you know, I wonder how many mouths are to feed. How many households do we have? Yeah, can you, take, can you, can you get back to me with the number? Like I'm looking, I want to I wanna publish a report. Yeah, how much mana is falling down this year? Right, how much mana? So I got to multiply the mana times number of households. Great. Great. So I need to know. God knows the number. God doesn't need Moses to figure out the number to tell him. God knows the number. Organically. So what's the point of counting? It's not for God. It's not for God. It's for us. It's that we should know that we count. Totally different theme. A person can go through their life and think that they don't matter. Right? I don't matter. I... You look at the stars, they're so vast, I'm so small. Do I really make a difference? Is it really important what I do, what I say, what I think? Does it really make a difference if I go this way or that way? Maybe not. Person might think, you know, what I do, what I say, what I think doesn't matter. The message of the Torah and Torah portion of Kitisa is you matter. Kitisa et Rosh, when you lift the head. By counting the people, you're going to be lifting them up and reminding them that they are ahead, not like ahead of something, A-E. All right, it's hard to say this. Right, not ahead, but ahead. Right, ahead. They are a value. Just like the head is the most valuable part of the body. Right? It just is. It is what it is, right? That's, it's just the most valuable. The same thing is true with every one of us. We are exceptionally valuable. This ties into a little bit of our discussion last week in our meditation from Sinai Course. Birth is God saying you matter. That I have a master plan here and I need you on the team. That's why you're here. If I didn't need you, you wouldn't be here. Nothing is by accident. No person is by accident. And that's what, not, we, we can know that. But there's one thing to know it or to believe it or to think that maybe that's true. And there's another thing to feel it. When God says to Moses, I want you to count every single Jew or every head of household, right? I want you to count. Everyone's like, oh, wow, we matter. We count. We're part of the number. Oh, it's a big deal. Kitisa et Rosh, when you lift the head, 
This will be a moment of inspiration, not just a census. This will be a reminder of one's true value. Let's get back and yes. So also it marks the first time that the Jewish people are right together. Right, counted as a as a nation, correct? Yeah. So which marks the beginning. Yeah, which is which highlights another beautiful idea that there's this interplay between individuality and community. And maybe what you're saying is, what I'm taking from you is that even as you become a people, we can't forget about the individual. Because there's no such thing as a community without an individual. If we look past the individual, then what kind of community is this? A community where everyone looks the same? We call that fascism. Right? That's not a community. It's fascism. Everyone has to look, act the same, and, and give up their identity for the, for the, for the, for the, the group. That's not, that's not, uh... And among our differences, we, we comprise one people. Like puzzle pieces. Right. Like puzzle pieces. Everyone's got their angle and their hook, and everything is important. Every single individual is important. Good. Excellent. As we're becoming a nation, God says, don't forget about the individual. It's not just Am Yisrael, the nation of Israel. It's Reb Yisrael, Mr. Israel, right? It's not just the nation, it's the individual. That's a very important idea. Good. Now, next, let's go back inside. I want to highlight some more things. We're just going, we did a few verses. We're going back and kind of like, uh, you know, getting a little bit deeper into some themes. Okay. We talked about Ayin Hara, the evil eye, when counting. And the, the, um, the way around that is to not count people directly, but to count them indirectly. So you don't count them one, two, three. You say, not one, not two, not three. Or you count in other ways. In this case, it was by giving a donation. But here we have, or giving a contribution. And here we have the next lesson. What is our true value? Our true value is not what we have, but it's what we give. When do we count? When are we counted? When we give. I hope that, that point is coming, coming across loud and clear. Right? What is our true value? What we possess? Nah, not really. Not really. That's not what, that's not what, what our value is. I mean, yeah, maybe in, you know, in this culture it is, but not really. What our value is, what we give. The values that, the, the values that we have and the values are usually determined by what we're willing to give up. It's when we give. God says, I want you to count the people. And when are they going to be counted? When they give something. We count when we give. Cue up one of my favorite stories. I think I was speaking to myself, stage direction. The story that I love is with, with um, who is it with? Maybe Sir Moses Montefiore. Or Lord Rothschild. One of those two. One of the... Jewish wealthy financiers and philanthropists. Somebody once asked him, whichever one it was, how much are you worth? Like a, a, noble, a noble woman asked him, how much are you worth? And he gave a number. And she said, no, can't be. They say about you, you're worth way more than that. And he said, I feel like I told this story recently at a class. And he said, the number that I gave you is the amount that I've given over the years to tzedakah. Because what I have right now in the bank or my assets or my investments all could disappear tomorrow. Blink of an eye. Nothing is safe. The only thing that's safe is what I've given. What I've contributed, that's my true value. That's my eternal, my eternal worth, so to speak. So that's mirrored again in this idea of counting through giving. When you give, you're counted. 
there's a message there. There's a deep message there. Okay, back inside, just again, go over some themes. So many themes. A half a shekel. Why not a whole shekel? Everyone's giving half a shekel. First, there's half a shekel. But they couldn't afford a shekel? Come on. Everyone could afford a shekel. Half a shekel. Many, many, many layers of meaning. One that resonates for me. You count and you matter, but always recognize that you're still a half. You're still a half. What does that mean? You still need the other person. You matter, but don't let it get to your head. Right? God loves you. This couldn't work. This whole master plan of existence couldn't work without you. Great. So then I'm the best. Slow it down. You're a half a shekel. You're a half a shekel. You still need someone else to make a full shekel. Yeah? It's like these activities where you end up with a half and you need to find someone else to match and uh, whatever. I have like a concept. I don't have an actual application of what this would look like in real life. But it's like you're, you're still a half. You need the other one to make it whole. And that's the idea of community, right? We said one way and now we're going the other way. You have a community. Don't forget about the individuals. But when you have individuals, don't forget about community. It works both ways. Right? When you have a community, the danger is overlooking the individual. When you look at the individual, the, the danger is everyone becomes just obsessed with self and no, one, no one's working together. So you need both. You need a hybrid. You need community. You also need individuality. And this is the way that the Torah, God seeks to strike this balance. You're counted individually when you give a half a shekel. You got, you got both, both themes. Let's continue. Um, silver. Silver. The half a shekel was, from, was made of a silver coin. It was a silver donation. And it was used for the, although it doesn't say it here, it was used for the adonim. The adonim were the sockets. Remember the mishkan beams? We spoke about this at length a few weeks ago. Um, not the courtyard. That had posts and, and a linen, uh, beautiful linen, um, I don't know, screen. I think of, um, you know when they do construction? And you have those, uh, you know, like... Green screens? Yeah. The green screen, yeah. Yeah, like this, right. Like the screen is a future home of or whatever it is. It's like, you know, material, whatever. So that's like the outer courtyard, but linen. But the inner Mishkan was a building with a curtain roof, but it was a, it was a building. Had planks of wood, acacia wood planks. Atzei oimdim, krashim, karash, right? Sheker, karash. It was the beams. How'd they stand up? Well, we know. There were sockets. Silver sockets. Every beam, remember I had two posts at the bottom, two pegs that went into, each one went into a, a silver socket. These coins were used for the silver sockets. Now, I don't know if they melted them down and made the sockets or if they used them to purchase the sockets. Maybe they used the silver itself to make the sockets. But the silver of the half shekel donation went to the sockets. The socket served as the foundation of the Mishkan. Let me explain. Typically, when you think of a foundation of a building, what are you thinking of? Something underground, right? Because typically a, a house, a building, right, is, it's not just sitting on the, I mean, sometimes it is, right? But oftentimes there's a foundation that's dug under the ground. The Mishkan wasn't dug in. The Mishkan was portable. You set it up, you're good to go. So the Adonim, the sockets were the foundation. What's the foundation? Foundation of a building is not always the, the most glorious spot. It's not like when people tour a building, it's like, oh, have you seen our foundation? Uh, have you toured the foundation? It's lovely. It's a lovely place to visit. 
Who goes to the foundation? Foundation is completely functional. It's pragmatic. It's um, utilitarian. It's not... No one puts couches in the foundation. It's like, oh, we have a nice sitting area in the foundation. It's a foundation. But the foundation is the most important part of the building. And it's what builds the foundation, in this case, what created the silver sockets, the half shekel donation that everyone gave without exception, no more and no less. What creates the foundation for our service of God? Commitment. Yes, we have in our, in our relationship with God, there are couches and there's, you know, beautiful verandas. It's a veranda even, right? There's, there's beautiful, um, you know, views and, and, and all these wonderful chandeliers and rugs and wood and, and gold. And it's beautiful. And china and glassware. And it, in our relationship with God, there are many beautiful things. Many beautiful touches, we do this mitzvah beautifully and that mitzvah wonderfully and we study this Torah and it makes sense to us and we're inspired. All of these are wonderful things. But what is the core of our relationship with God? It's the commitment. It's the, it's the steady commitment. And in that commitment, the commitment itself is a, it's a unifier. When it comes to the, the couches and the rugs, everyone's different. Everyone's different. Everyone has their mitzvah that they like. But when it comes to commitment, commitment by definition, I'm not saying everyone's committed the same. I don't, that's not what I'm trying to say. But commitment in and of itself, the concept of commitment is the same. Right? Doing a mitzvah, not how you did it and when you did it and with what you did it, but doing the mitzvah itself, that's the adonim. That's the sockets, silver, pure silver sockets that came from the half a shekel. Hey, Mark, good to see you. Okay. Mark, I see you have your golfing hat on. Well, I'm going to golf hat. It's a hat. <laughs> All right. I was kidding. This is a fishing hat. This For, is a big fishing hat. <laughs> it's a fishing. Okay. Wrong sport. Okay. Good. Um, back in. Huh? Your head is being cut off. My head? Actually, actually just don't see your eyes. Just see your head. The top of your forehead. Oh, I would hope not. All right. Is that my, is that I, it might be it might be you, but the good news is in real life. Yeah, we're good. In real life, here's the thing. Either way, in real life, I still feel intact. Thank Baruch Hashem. You know, if you were alerting me to an emergency, that would be another situation. About the head. We were literally lift that Kitisa at Rosh. Lift the head when you lift the head. Maybe my head is lifted. Mark, you have like a literal interpretation of the of the of the of the parsha in your screen. Okay, back inside. We are going to cover another theme. No, that's it. We're, we're, up, to, we're up to date. Verse 17. So we talked about the, the contribution of the half a shekel for the counting for that we use for the sockets. Good. We had like three. Rabbi, yeah. Rabbi, may I, I would like to add insight. So Absolutely. everyone gave half a shekel, poor or rich. So every, yes. like, it's add on to what you said before, that everyone has value and the value is not what may appear on the outside, but everyone Correct. equal value. Correct. Correct. And let me just clarify what you're saying. Or not clarify, but add on or expand. There were some donations for the Mishkan that were up to whatever's, you know, their wealth or whatever. Like when it came to the gold and the, well, also other silver and copper and the materials and the wool and this and that, everyone could give what their heart desired. As generous or as not generous as they wished. But a half a shekel was a half a shekel. 
Rich, poor, half a shekel. And that also speaks to the duality. Right? Certain things, everyone's individual. Certain things, everyone's consistent. And that's the same. This parasha is really beautiful in its opening with the balance between individual and community. Which, by the way, is a major thing. And it's in all relationships. I mean, think about business. Yeah, You're running a company. To what extent do you empower everyone to be an individual versus a team? It's like yeah, there's, a, there's a balance there. You've got to thread a needle and getting the right, uh, the right mix of um, you know, accentuating both, so to speak. All right, back inside. Let's go to verse 17. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Ah, more vessels. Let's go. You shall make a wash stand of copper. This is known as, in the Hebrew, as the kiar. Kiar. Wash stand that is made of copper. Kiar nechoshes. And its base of copper for washing. Okay, so wash stand of copper and its base of copper. And what's it for? It's for washing. And I'm going to explain this in a moment. And you shall place it between the tent of meeting and the altar. And you shall put water therein. So, just some clarification. I mentioned this Shabbos at the learner service. And I, when I, what I mentioned then was, every morning, the Kohanim, the priests, would wash their hands and their feet. And I think Riva said, because Riva was with, with me, she said, because their feet were dusty, because they were walking in a desert. I think she said something along those lines. And they say from the mouth of babes, right? From the mouth of, of the young. So she got it exactly right. And there were spiritual reasons as well for the hand washing and the, and the, and the feet washing. That's what happened. There was a washstand of copper. It had a copper base to lift, to elevate it off the ground. And they used it to wash their hands and their feet. It, they poured water in it. There were like pipes or um, like spigots, spouts, whatever you call it. They would wash their hands and their feet. And where was it located? Between the tent of meeting, that's the building, and the altar, which is the animal altar, which is outside. So again, you have your building. This is like bird's eye view. You have your altar somewhere in between. In between building and altar is the wash basin. Here we go. In case you thought I was making up about washing hands and feet, verse 19, Aaron and his sons, the Kohanim, shall wash their hands and feet from it. Boom, black and white. When they enter the tent of meeting, they shall wash with water so that they will not die. You know what that means? <laughs> wash it so you won't die. And if I don't, uh-oh, right? Let's not ask that question. In other words, it wasn't just good practice. Make sure to wash your hands. not like a little sign in the restroom. Like, make sure to wash your hands before uh, exiting. This is like life or death for a Kohen. Gotta wash your hands and feet before doing the service. Or when they approach the altar to serve. It's not only when you walk inside the building where the menorah is and the showbread table and the incense uh, altar or the Holy of Holies. It's even when they approach the outer altar to serve. To make a fire offering rise up and smoke to the Lord. When you offer a, a sacrifice on the outside altar, you still have to wash your hands and feet before. They shall wash their hands and their feet so that they will not die. And this shall be for them a perpetual statute. For him and for his descendants, for their generations, perpetual statute throughout all time. Whenever there was a temple standing in whatever form, they had to wash their hands and their feet. Today, we perpetuate this. By washing the hands before eating bread. This is what we call the Natilat Yadayim prayer, the blessing before eating bread, before sitting down to a meal.
which is considered, as I said on Shabbos, considered to be an elevatory experience. Before we do that, we wash our hands. Not our feet. It's more complicated to do that. We wash our hands. We say a blessing for the hand washing. Then we go to the bread and we say a blessing over the bread and we eat it. Why do we do this? Why the formality? It's inspired by this mitzvah right here. Inspired by the priests who had to wash their hands before the service. We wash our hands before we serve God with the food that we eat. Okay. That takes us through our second mitzvah. Mitzvah one, count the census and the half shekel donation. Mitzvah two, the creation of the kiar, the wash basin. Let's do... Yes. I've always thought that they had to wash so God would not kill. But according to Rashi, he says uh, this was the death penalty. The death penalty was imposed on one who performs the service. So are you suggesting that Rashi is saying that it is the earthly courts could also adjudicate here? Yeah, that's what they said. Yeah, Rashi said, yeah, check out Rashi. Let's take a look. And they shall not die, yeah. He says, uh, this implies this that if they do not wash, they will die. Yeah. He says, this verse is written to impose the death penalty on one who performs service on the outer with Ms. Vega. Yeah. Without his hands and feet having been washed. Which, uh, oh, here we go. This verse is written to impose the death penalty on one the altar. Um, for, from the first death penalty, verse 20, we understand only the death is imposed upon one who enters the temple. I, you know, I, I'm not convinced that it means that the earthly courts are going to do this. Versus the heavenly court. I, I'm, I'm not sure. I don't see that. Okay. I see that from the translation that you have. I don't see that from the Hebrew. It's l'chai of misa. It's liability of death. Who's, but who's, who's doing the, the adjudic, who, who's, who's executing the execution, so to speak, right? Who's doing it? Doesn't, Rashi doesn't say. We would have to look up, um, do a deeper dive into the Talmud, into Rambam, and, and et cetera, and look at, look at the uh, finer details. Rashi clarified last week that when it says that that if the Kohen or the Kohen Gadol is missing garments, he's liable for death, it's not in the hands of, of humans. In other words, it's not through the human court. It's through the hands of heaven. I don't know that that changes here. I'm not saying it, it, it doesn't for sure. I'm just saying I don't know. I'm not forced to say that from the Hebrew here. L'chaiv Misa? That means to be liable for death. Where? Who? Doesn't say. Okay, now let's We'll toggle Rashi off, and let's jump into the next piece, which is about the incense. Okay, hold on, I feel like I scrolled down way too far. Yes, verse 22. It's a bit of a long reading here. Verse 22. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, And you, Moses, take for yourself spices of the finest sort, of pure myrrh, 500 shekel weights. That's a lot of myrrh. A fragrant cinnamon, half of it, 250 shekel weights. A fragrant cane, 250 shekel weights. Let let me just pause here for a moment. Time out. These are translations of of Hebrew phrases. I don't know if these are the only translations. In other words, these are Hebrew phrases, sorry, Hebrew terms, Hebrew spices, spices told in Hebrew. What it actually was in real life, here's one suggestion. Okay, myrrh, cinnamon, cane. All right, 24. And of cassia, or cassia. I'm not sure how you pronounce that. 500 
shekel weights according to the holy shekel, and one hin of olive oil. You shall make this into an oil of holy atonement, a perfumed compound according to the art of, the perf- of a perfumer. It shall be an oil of holy anointment. And I may have misspoken about the incense. This is not the incense. This is the anointing oil. This is the anointing oil. So the oil of anointment had some spices and some fragrance in it. And this is what it was. This is what um, we read last week that Moses was to anoint and to not in the inauguration of the, of the priests into service. They would be anointed with oil and some of the vessel, the temple vessels also, Mishkan vessels were also anointed with oil. This is the formula for the oil. And you shall anoint it with the tent of meeting and the ark of testimony. I'm sorry, I misread that. And you shall anoint with it, with this oil, as I just mentioned, the Mishkan, the tent of meeting and the ark of testimony. The table and all its implements, the menorah and its implements, the altar of incense, the altar of the burnt offering and its and all its implements, the washstand which we just mentioned and its base. All of these items, all these vessels, should be anointed with the anointing oil, and you shall sanctify them so that they become a holy of holies. In other words, by anointing them, it's going to render them holy. And whatever touches them shall become holy. If, if anything touches these holy vessels, the, the, the holiness is conferred and transferred to them. And with it, the anointing oil, you shall anoint Aaron and his sons and sanctify them to serve me as Kohanim. They were also anointed with the oil. The oil served two functions or the same function for two different parties. One, the stuff. And two, the people. The stuff of the Mishkan, the vessels, the hardware, and number two, the Kohanim, the priests. And to the children of Israel, God says, you shall speak. Moses, you tell the people, saying, this shall be oil of holy anointment to me for your generations. This mixture, anybody's taking notes here, right? The, um, the myrrh, the cinnamon, the cane, the cassia, cassia, um, along with oil, that formula should only be used for holy anointment. Batman, for holy anointment, not for private use. It should not be poured upon human flesh. And according to its formula, you shall not make anything like it. Don't come out with a new flavor of perfume called holy and holy ancient temple, holy anointing, oil, fragrance from Calvin Klein. Not happening. Don't do it. It's not a private issue uh, formula. This is holy formula. It is holy. It shall be holy to you. It is holy. It should only be used for holy things. Treat it as sacred. In fact, any person who compounds anything like it or puts any of it on an alien... Yeah, you know what that means, right? On a non-Kohen, not an actual alien, okay? Just making sure we're clear. right? Anyone who makes the formula without even touching it, or if you put the original formula on someone who's a non-Kohen, shall be cut off from his people. Nichras, kares. This is a very severe penalty in Torah. Not only, it, it's a spiritual excision of the soul. The soul on some level is cut off from its source. This is a really serious deal. 
back in the day, a person would pass away at a young age, physically, and spiritually, their soul would be separated on some level. Okay, there's a big discussion mystically about how much total sever, not total sever, enough that it caused a lot of harm. We don't want to tread that. We don't want to walk down that path, God forbid. So, again, two prohibitions and a mitzvah. The mitzvah is make the compound for the inauguration of the, temp, of, the, of the Mishkan vessels and the Kohanim. That's a mitzvah. What's the prohibition? Don't make it for private use. Sorry, don't, yeah, don't, don't make it in, the, in a context other than for the temple, number one. And number two, don't use the compound for a use other than temple service. Those are your prohibitions. Let's continue. Rabbi, yes, me? sure. So is there anything in modern day that replaces the use of oil and incense? No. No. Not to my knowledge. Not in Jewish, not in the daily Jewish practice. Sorry. Not in traditional daily Jewish practice. There's no ritual with oil. There's no ritual with incense. Could a person put on perfume, oils, creams? Sure. A person, could they... Uh, have potpourri in the house or have, uh, you know, diffusers and whatnot? Sure. But is it a Jewish ritual, part of Jewish ritual life? No. It's interesting. It's interesting. My take on this is because it's so, it's so severe, the prohibition of, of replicating is so severe, we don't even want to give the impression that we're getting anywhere near it. So not only are we doing some other form of incense or oil, oil, fragrant oil situation, we're just totally disconnected. Now, does it mean that it's prohibited to use essential oils? Of course not. Nothing wrong, right? But is it, a, is it, a, is it a, an intentional, traditional Jewish thing? Not to my knowledge. Is it something that could be used? Sure. Is it forbidden? No. Unless you're replicating that formula. So it's fine. It's kosher. But has it been done? Did the Rambam mix essential oils together and, and, and fragrance for his personal spiritual thing? There's no record of that. It's not, it's not, part, it's not necessarily part of regular uh, ritual life. It is, Havdalah, perhaps. Say it again? Havdalah. Havdalah. Havdalah is for a specific reason. Uh, oh, you mean the basam, the fragrant spices. Yes. yes. That yes. is, right, that's to give ourselves a bit of a kick as we get out of the spirituality of Shabbos and go into the, right. the mundane week, it's like the smelling salts that get us going. Yeah, so you're right. There is fragrance and, 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 and aromatics on some level used in ritual once a week. Correct. Yes. That is an important clarification. Yes. Oil. Do we have... So that's at least one place. There may be more, but that's at least one place. Oils. I can't think of one. Uh, so I'm, let me just clarify. I'm not saying categorically saying there's no place... As you pointed out, there is a place for some form of, of, of scent. Um, also, perfume came down with the mana to make women right. feel better. Right. And jewelry. Yeah. And jewelry. Yeah. And jewelry. <laughs> yes. you, got, you, got the, you got the trifecta. One second. Today's February 14th. Right? Let's just be real here. You got the trifecta. One second, one second, one second. The mana could taste like chocolate. Let's break this down. Let's break this down. Let's break this down. The mana could have fallen. It's, there's no reason that it could not have tasted like chocolate. And it came down with perfume and with jewelry. Boom. 
Boom! February 14th, we got it's this. Jewish holiday. Jewish holiday. <laughs> the mana on the 14th, imagine the husband goes to the wife and says, I have this for you. She's like, what is it? He says, it's perfume and jewelry and chocolate. And she says, we get this every day and it's called mana. And he says, happy, no. It's what you said, remember one time you said, you don't want to buy jewelry if you don't know what style. Right. So this is a mana perfect. Done, done, whatever you want. Do you want want chocolate truffles? Do you want a bittersweet chocolate? Do you want milk chocolate? Do you want caramel inside? Almonds, peanuts, this, that, solid chocolate, hazelnut, praline, whatever you want. It's yours, your chocolate. Your chocolate, that's, that's actually not a bad business model. Imagine a box of chocolates, because I think life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. But imagine if you could make it be whatever you want. Forrest Gump has to find a new line because that's no longer relevant. All right, so many things. So many, so many things are collapsing around us. All right, let's continue back inside. All very good points. Okay, here we go. Let's get to uh, the next mitzvah, which is finally the one that I preempted earlier, not preempted, but I jumped the gun on, which is the aromatics. This is the incense. Take, the Lord said to Moses, take for yourself. Same language that he used before about the oil, right? Remember that? Take, ah, I can't scroll. Take for yourself. Yeah, the oil, the spiced oil. He goes, he's the same thing over here. Take for yourself aromatics. Namely, here we go. Here are the ingredients. Balsam sap, anica, and galbanum. Aromatics and pure frankincense. They shall be of equal weight. And you shall make it into incense, a compound according to the art of the perfumer. Well blended, pure, and holy. And you shall crush some of it very finely. And you shall set some of it before the testimony in the tent of meeting where, where I will arrange meetings with you. I, it shall be to you a holy of holies. Basically the incense goes into the building, not in the holy of holies, but uh, outside that it shall be to you a holy of holies, not in the holy of holies. It's just uh, an expression. And the incense that you make, you shall not make for yourselves. Oh, here we go. Right. So once again, the prohibition, that's the mitzvah. That's what you should do. What shouldn't you do? Don't make it for yourself. The instant that you make, you shall not make for yourselves according to its formula. For yourselves. Private issue. Don't make private issue stuff. Right? Cue up the conversation with uh, the Israeli stuff that's being sold. Good. Don't mix it together. Don't try to replicate the, the formula. Right? Don't make it for yourselves according to its formula. It shall be holy to you for the Lord. Keep it for God. This is God's perfume or God's incense, not yours. Let's continue. Any person who makes anything like it to smell its fragrance shall be cut off from his people. Wow. There you go. I'd stay away from that a little bit, personally. Let's continue Exodus chapter 31. Now, now we get a little bit practical, right? Because we have all of this, whew, long reading, all of this information. We have God's vision for the Mishkan. We have the vessels and the garments and the priests. And now we have like um, half a shekels and sockets. And we have uh, a wash basin and and, an oil for anointing. And we have the incense for this, for the, uh, the, the, the burning of the, of the incense. Wonderful. All we're missing is someone to actually build all this stuff. Who builds it? 
Glad you asked. Chapter 31, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, See, Re'eh, see, I have called by name, but Salel, I've named. I'm, I'm identifying. You don't have to, you know, uh, Israel's got talent. We don't need, we don't need a, uh, we're not, t- we don't have to post a job. I, I, I got your people. But Sal, the son of Uri, the son of Hur of the tribe of Judah. That's one guy. And I've imbued him with the spirit of God, God says to Moses. I've given him my spirit with wisdom, with insight, with knowledge. Chachma bina das, bechachma Tvuna bina uvedas and and das chabad right. But Salel was the first chabadnik. There you go. Write it down. Right. Save this timestamp. But Salel, the first one who we know about, has chachma bina das, and with a talent. Yeah, legit. That's the Hebrew. Chachma betvuna uvedas. That's it. Right. I've imbued him with chabad and with talent for all manner of craftsmanship. This guy. Is talented, not only with his hands, not only with his head, not only with his heart, with his soul. He's, he's soulful, a soulful creator. Someone who creates with their soul. It's a different experience. There's a depth. And he can do master weaving to work with gold, with silver, with copper. That's a lot of different materials. With the craft of stones, gemstones for setting and with, for setting. And with the craft of wood. To do every manner of work. This guy can do it all. He's a woodworker. He's a gemstone cutter and, and, and engraver. He works with materials and with gold and silver and copper. And he's a weaver. He's a weaver. He knows how to make garments. This guy does it all. And behold, we, I have another guy with him. I have placed Aholiyav, the son of Achisamach, the tribe of Dan. He's going to be his assistant, his right-hand man. And all the wise-hearted into whose hearts I've instilled wisdom, they should all be part of the team. Those are not mentioned by name, but anyone else, everyone else who's wise-hearted, I said a few weeks ago, wise-hearted means the wisdom and the heart, the IQ and the EQ, someone who gets it and feels it, and they shall make everything I've commanded you. And what is it? Here's a list, just in case we've, we haven't been taking notes over the last few weeks, here's a list. The tent of meeting, that's the building, that's the inner building, and the ark for the testimony, as well as the cover that shall be upon it, all the implements of the tent, the table and its implements, the pure menorah and all its implements, the altar of incense, that's the inner altar of gold, the altar for the burnt offering and all its implements, that's the outer altar of copper, the washstand, which we just mentioned today, and its base, the meshwork garments, don't forget about the clothing, the holy garments for Aaron, the Kohen, the high priest, the garments of his sons, the regular priest, which is service Kohanim, eight garments for him, four for them, the anointing oil, which we mentioned today, and the incense, which we mentioned today for the holy, in complete accordance with everything I've commanded you, they shall do. This is a fantastic list right here. This list, 7 through 11, is everything we spoke about in the last two weeks and today. There you go. That's what had to be made. And God is telling Moses, I got guys for the job, but Salel, yeah, but Salel, he's the guy. I'm naming him Aliyah. He's the guy. And everyone else who can do this. Let's continue. One more message, and we're going to close it out with this today. One more point, God says. By the way, before you pull out the hammer, you have to know this. You're not doing this every day. You're not doing this every day. You're not building the Mishkan. You're not building me a home every day of the week. You're going to take a week off. You see what God's doing? God's setting out the contract. God says, here's the contract. The contract is, you're going to build me a home, but you cannot work on Shabbos. 
right? John Goodman doesn't roll on Shabbos. God doesn't have his house built on Shabbos. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, And you, Moses, speak to the children of Israel and say, Only keep my Sabbaths. In other words, build all of this, but, only means but, however, make sure you're keeping Shabbos. I, I know I just said it. I'm going to say it again. I'm going to risk um, bugging everybody by repeating it. I'm going to say it again. God says, here's the list. Here's the checklist. You got to build a tent of meeting and an ark and a menorah and a showbread table and an altar and an inner altar and an outer altar and all this stuff. Great. But one thing, you have to keep Shabbos. Only keep my Sabbath means, but make sure you're keeping Shabbos. Don't work on Shabbos for my building or for any building, but yeah, even, even for my building. You say, oh, God said to do it. We should do it on Shabbos. Nope. Keep my Shabbos. For it is a sign between me and you for your generations to know that I, the Lord, make you holy. If you forget about Shabbos, you're forgetting about me, then who are you building the building for? And what are you even doing? Building a home for me? I don't want it on Shabbos. It's a, it's a holy day. Don't work on it. But I want to build you a home on my terms, not your terms. You want to build me a home, right? Oh, give me a home where the buffalo roam, but don't build it on Shabbos day or night, right? Don't build it on Shabbos if it's for me. Therefore, God says to Moses, tell the people, keep the Shabbat, the Sabbath, keep Shabbos, for it is a sacred thing for you. Those who desecrate it shall be put to death. Okay, for whoever performs work on it, that soul will be cut off from the midst of its people. Again, Shabbos, very, very holy day. Six days a week work may be done. Yes, you can work six days a week. You can work on my Mishkan or whatever project you have for six days. But on the seventh day, but, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of complete rest. Holy to the Lord. Kadosh, Kodesh Lashem, holy to the Lord. It's God's day, the Lord's day. Whoever performs work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Very serious uh, <laughs> um, biblical uh, um, consequence for Shabbos. Thus shall the children of Israel observe the Sabbath to make the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. This is not just a mitzvah. This is a sign that we're in this together. This is... This is our commitment to each other. Shabbos is not just one of the 613. It's a sign of the covenant or it forms the covenant. What's the covenant between me and the children of Israel? It is forever a sign that in six days the Lord created the heaven and the earth. And on the seventh day, he ceased and rested. How do I know that you believe in creation? That I'm behind it. Shabbos is our testimony and it's our covenant. All right, so many powerful ideas in this reading, but we're at the time. We're at time now, so I want to just quickly summarize some of what we covered today, and leave you with some words, uh, with, with some uh, perhaps uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Food for thought. There you go. Food for thought. Number one. Number one. We all count, not in a general way. But individually, we count. You count. I count. We count individually. Everyone has a unique contribution to give.
and we're counted based on the contribution, not our, our value is not in what we consume. Our value is in what we give. We live in a society in which value is conferred upon those who consume the most. The biggest consumers are the ones who have become, oh, you have so much, you've taken so much. Oh, you're on a pedestal. In Judaism, in Torah, in Yiddishkeit, value is not conferred upon the ones who consume, who have the most, but who give the most. Are you contributing? Are you giving? Are you dedicating? Are you sacrificing? Are you changing the world for the better? If yes, now we're talking. Consuming, consumerism, treif. I mean, treif. It's, it's, uh, it's, not, it's not a Jewish concept. Consumerism, as an ism, it's not a Jewish concept. All right, we're not going to be perfect, obviously, but the point is to know the score. All right, that's one thing. Next thing we said is even as we're individuals, we have to know that we're only a half. We need the other. Or, I didn't mention this before, we need Hashem. We need God. We spoke about the washstand, conscious preparation before service, washing our hands before we eat is the parallel. We spoke about the, the, the anointing oil. We spoke about the aromatic incense. We spoke about building a mishkan, how it requires mindful thought, mindful thought, as well as emotional connection. We have to not just use our heads, but also our hearts when, bu- when building a home for Hashem. And of course, even as we create, we have to know when to pause, to hit the pause button, or maybe even the stop button. And that is a holy sign. To be able to stop and reflect is what makes the experience holy. Because otherwise it could become self-serving. I was speaking with Leah Friday afternoon. It was a very busy day. Friday was extremely busy, just work-wise, just stuff, a lot of stuff. And we were speaking about a theme that I mention all the time, that how on Shabbos, it is the greatest gift. With the onset of Shabbos, to take a phone, power it off, and let go. It is an absolutely priceless gift. I couldn't... To, be, to have to... Not have to, but to be inundated with... The, to be plugged in on the same level seven days a week without that break... I, I'm, what, I'm advoc- what I'm suggesting now simply is this. For our wellness, mental and emotional health, I believe, one man's opinion, I believe Shabbos does wonders. If that's, you know, not, not that Shabbos needs my, uh, <laughs> my approval. It's like Shabbos, approved by Rabbi Ari. He thinks it's a good idea. I'm just saying personally. The, 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 just the, the benefits are incredible. The Talmud says more than we've given, more than we've done for Shabbos, Shabbos has done for us. More than we've kept Shabbos, Shabbos has kept us. And I believe that to be true. As, as, as much work as it requires to keep Shabbos, I, I would say the benefits far exceed. And... You know, it's also a covenant to sign between us and God that God created the world in six days. That's good. It's good also. That's what Torah says. It's a good theme also. 
Anyway, all right, may all of our Shabbases be all resty. Not rusty, resty. And may we remember that value is in what we give and contribute. And may we always prepare for things methodically, washing our hands and feet, not jumping in right away to things that we do, but taking the time to prepare. Think about the ritual hand washing. Fill up a cup. You pour it on. Sorry, no, you did three and three. You pour it. You pour it again. You pour it again. You switch again and again. You take your time before you jump. Oh, let me eat. Slow down. Slow down. Slow down. Wisdom infusing action, then our action is holy. All right, I threw in an extra insight. I don't know if you guys are paying. I threw in an extra insight. No extra charge. A little. All right, my friends. Uman, Uman, Uman means a craftsperson, like an artisan. An Uman is an artisan, an artisan, like a craftsman, a craftswoman, somebody who. Rashi kind of identified that word specifically regarding setting stones. Oh, yeah. There you go. It's an artisan. Yeah. Uman means, literally means training. It means training. You have to train to know how to do these types of work. Yeah. And of course, we have plenty of practice with our gemstone workshops. I'm a professional. Okay. <laughs> Maybe an M, a semi-professional. All right. Dangerous enough to know how to follow instructions at, at the very least. All right. You know, not, yeah. not to let the, the, the beads fly, roll away. Oh, I've been there. I've, I, in, the, in the shul upstairs, I, there I was.